Well, this is the last of the meetings. You know, quickly goes the fellowship together. But I hope the blessing will not go with the fellowship. Because every time we come, it's a little more serious. I am sorry that there were some that were not here this weekend, some that we would normally have expected, but I understand that there has been another attempt by Satan to divide and conquer. He's a master. Oh, if only God's people would realize that this is a time to unite together. Satan's going to find anything to disunite, to separate apart. Um, now you can't manufacture unity, as I've said before. It is something that you have to have. A purity with Jesus. A character that is like Christ is the only thing that brings unity. And any church is going to be split apart, any group is going to be split apart if we don't have a truth that has sanctified our hearts. And even so, if we find someone that differs from us, we've got to be very careful the way we handle such a person. It's easy to jump in and say he's a heretic. And yet, God has patience with all, all of us. And we need to try to nurture such a one. That someone that's fallen, where to lift up, knowing that we ourselves can be what? Castaways. We can be castaways. Now, as I said, I was going to talk on winds of doctrine. I expected there'd be one of the books here that I could reference um, and, and uh, quote some of the material from. But let me just give you a little idea because there's some other areas that um, I want to cover too. When we took up Winds of Doctrine, the whole purpose of that book was to show what is happening in largely in the self-supporting work. You know, I don't know how many of you have read Keepers of the Faith. Uh, some people have told me that book is worth the price for the very first chapter, The Ministerial Dilemma. It's, as it were, a story of a young man that comes into the Adventist faith, he's taught properly what it is, and then he's got a burden to become a minister. He goes to our college and he starts to find different things from what he knows to be the truth. And that young man um, realized that many of the other young people in the class don't believe the same as he did. And then the professor at first is patient with him but soon gets impatient with him. And the other students get on his case for disrupting the class by asking or questioning the teacher. So he decides he better be a little more careful, but even so he's in difficult. And he's brought into the chairman's office and even into the dean's office and said, look, you're here to learn not to try to disrupt classes. 
He tries to write what he believes in his papers, his term papers and his essays and so on. And he gets very poor grades for them, even though they're the truth. So he comes to a conclusion. Thank you, sister, that's very kind of you. He comes to a conclusion that he better be a little more careful. But even so, every now and again, he comes back, he can't hold himself. And he's getting close to the end, and they're telling him, look, you've got a lot of promise, but how can we recommend you for God's work when you're not following the ways of your teachers? So he decides to be silent until he gets that appointment, and he gets an appointment, an internship, and so now he's going to preach the truth. He doesn't get many opportunities, but once in a while he gets that pulpit and he stands up and preaches the truth. But someone reports him to the senior pastor. And the pastor starts to anguish with him. This is not what this congregation needs. We've got a very peaceful and uh, unified church. What they've got is a very sleepy church. That's usually the reason. But in the end, he's got to make another decision. And so he decides that he won't. He'll wait till he gets his own pulpit. Young people, you can't compromise like that. Well, eventually he gets his own pulpit and he starts to preach again, but he's got people in his church that are not going to put up with these straight sermons. They haven't heard sermons like this for years, maybe in some cases decades. And the elders get a little uneasy about it. And eventually they tell the conference president. So there. Oh, you, did ha you do have one or two of them there. Good. What's that? I found it hiding. Yeah, good. And so... Um, The president, you know, talked, thank you, to him. And he said, look, we do want to ordain you, but you, ca you can't divide churches like this. So eventually decides to silence his voice again until he's ordained. But there's only so long that you can silence your voice before you eventually never raise it again. And now he finds that he's a much more popular preacher. And he somehow comforts himself that he's found the right way to preach. And that he's more understanding of the needs of the people and so on. And one day that young man becomes a president, not so young now. And an intern comes into his conference. It's been a little like he was when... And he hears about it and in fatherly way he brings him in and tells him how he had been like him, very kindly, but wise men had helped him to find the right way to preach and how to be a blessing to the people. And so the whole cycle is perpetrated and perpetuated again. And I tell you, that's happened to many a man. How do I know it? Because I've had at least seven pastors tell me when they read that book, the latest, 
was early this year a um, Hispanic pastor from the Greater New York Conference. He had been moving in that direction and someone gave him this book to read. I'm sorry. This book <laughs> to read. But then this book goes on to detail 22 errors that have come into the Seventh-day Adventist church, largely through our colleges. And almost all of these, or many of them, are believed by many of the pastors today. And they're taught that way. By the way, this man pulled out of the seminary when he read that book. He could no longer continue to listen to what he was listening to there, he said, after he'd read this book. There are still some courageous young ministers. He's not ordained, may never be ordained. He may never get back into conference work. But praise the Lord, he took a stand on truth. But this book, 11 years later, is about the errors largely that have come in through self-supporting work. You know, Satan's attacked both denominational and self-supporting. If you think the battle is between denominational and self-supporting work, or those who um, support self-supporting ministries and those that support conference ministries, you're going to be sadly disillusioned because there's so many errors in self-supporting work as there are in denominational work. We would be foolish to think that Satan didn't get uh, an attack upon self-supporting work. After all, his greatest attack upon those who are closest to the truth. He's got to derail them at all costs. And I tell you, they've flooded in. I don't know what it is, but some of the sometimes Britain and Australia and New Zealand and Norway seems to be another one that falls a lot for these kind of deceptions. I can't believe the Australians. You know, they. I'm an Australian, and they pride themselves on their independence, and you know, and no one's going to tell me what to do. But they're about as easily deceived as any group of people I've ever met. I don't mean all of them. God's always going to have faithful people. But winds of doctrine rage through this place too, through Britain. There's hard, you can just about raise any kind of false idea and someone's going to accept it, take hold of it. It's pathetic. I think part of it is because people spend their time listening to what this man says and they then become riveted upon this man. Now, since I've been here, I've been told that there's been a great split over the glorious holy mountain of Daniel 11. I know there's been a little bit of a flutter in the United States on that. I would suggest to any of you that are associated with it. I think it was largely down in London that this has made an impact. Is that right? 
How is it? In London. But let me just say simply this about it. Firstly, you won't be in heaven because you know what Daniel is referring to in the glorious holy mountain. We've got to be careful not to divide Israel over non-salvation issues. Sister White was very strong on that. Very strong on it. I've left it alone. If I'd known it was going to become such a big issue, it would have been in this book. There are three main views that I'm aware of. There may be others. There are those that believe that the glorious holy mountain is Jerusalem. There are those that believe it's the United States. And there are those who believe it's God's faithful people. Now, Dr. Lloyd Rosenwald and his wife have written a manuscript on this. And it's an excellent manuscript. Largely just going back to spirit of prophecy statements. We can't go wrong on that. Now, Brother Anderson mentioned yesterday the issue of the kings of the East. Oh, yes, I remember much the same as he remembers when it was, you know, China and Japan. When Japan defeated Russia um, at the turn of the century, I tell you, that became very popular in the Adventist church. But the very context tells us it's not dealing with that. And if you read what Sister White has to say, you know good and well it's not a battle between the eastern nations of Asia and the western nations of Europe. I believe that um, the Rosenvolves have given the most impelling evidence that the glorious holy land or the mountain is not the United States. It's not Jerusalem. It's God's faithful people. It might be good to get over here some of those manuscripts from um, Lloyd and Leola Rosenvold. You know, they, they have written some wonderful pieces of literature. They're so riveted upon the Bible and spirit of prophecy. They don't go for speculation. But as I say, I don't believe you're going to be lost or saved on that. You're going to be lost and saved on righteousness by faith, on our acceptance of the full power of Jesus Christ, our understanding of the everlasting gospel and his salvation on behalf of the human race. Let's be careful about it. This book here, let me look at some of the topics in here to give you an idea of what the book deals with. First, we just start off with doctrines of men or doctrines of God. Then doctrines of devils. What are doctrines of devils? Well, every doctrine that isn't of God is a doctrine of Satan. That's a short answer. Making the spirit of prophecy of none effect. That chapter deals with those who say we can't um, use the spirit of prophecy since 1844. 1884, I'm sorry. Because it's been tampered with. 
Well, we take that up and look at what Sister White has to say because those challenges came in her day. No one less than her own son, Edson White, put that rumour around in 1905 and Sister White answered it. He was a little jealous of Willie White and he said, uh, Willie is too much influencing what my mother writes. My, did Sister White answer her son on that one. Now, Edson was a good man, but he's a rash man. He was a man that didn't know how to handle money. He was the bane of his father. Sister White had to tell James White to be a little kinder to Edson. And yet he did a wonderful work down in the south of the United States. He's a complex person, really, as I read about Edson White. But I suppose he felt a little envious of the inner role that Willie White was playing there. Chapter 4 is how to test new light. That's an important thing because no book's going to have the latest effort of Satan to derail. So you better know how to evaluate without becoming emotionally uh, unstable. Listen, I can tell you something. If you fall for a deception... It's hard to come out of it, but you may. But if you fall for another one, it's harder still, and another. And you'll see some people that have a pattern. The latest winter doctrine they're into. Have you found anyone like that? They follow, follow. I tell you, that is one of the most dangerous things that can happen. <clears throat> we also take up the misapplication of time prophecy. You know, this reinterpretation of time prophecy. And they're so anxious to put Revelation 13.5 as different from, say, Daniel 7.25 on the 1260-day prophecy, saying it's literal days at the end of time. Do you know twice in Great Controversy, Sister White uses Revelation 13.5 plainly, and it's all in here, to show that that prophecy applies to the medieval reign of the papacy. It's not a reinterpretation at the end of time. And then, the deceptions of the false identification of the second beast of Revelation 13. Larry Wilson's concept has spread, spread like a prairie fire. He says that the, the beast, second beast of Revelation 13 is Satan himself. How do we know it can't be Satan? What's the easiest way of showing it couldn't be Satan? Because it had to arise at a certain time. All right, that's true. And Satan's been around since... For a long time, hasn't he? But just look at the words itself. And he spake as a dragon. Now, if he was a dragon, would you say he spake as a dragon? <laughs> or spake like a dragon? Or like the dragon, you'd say the dragon spoke. I mean, that's not that, how foolish it could be. I remember every now and again people would say to Russell and myself, you speak just like your father. But no one confused us as being our father. The very statement precludes that this could be Satan. Yes, someone that speaks the same way that Satan are under... The control of Satan may be, but not 
so far. Listen, the United States, it's so obvious that it is the second beast of Revelation 13. You read great controversy, the wonderful predictions that were made and everyone is coming to power, pass. And remember, those statements were made during the Monroe Doctrine where America had taken a stance. They'd have nothing to do with Europe. They'd only be concerned with the Americas. Of course, they told Europe to keep out of the Americas too. And they had successively had nothing to do with the war, the, uh, the revolution of 1830, the revolutions of 1848 under Louis Philippe, the Crimean War, the Franco-Prussian War, America had kept a nose right out of all those European conflicts and this First World War until 1917. But even then it went back into the isolationist policy. Didn't even join the League of Nations that had helped found. But after the Second World War, what a difference. America has become the coercer, the policeman of the world. Sister White wrote when the Monroe Doctrine was good and healthy and well, but she identified that the United States would become the great enforcer of the dictates of the papacy. The seventh chapter deals with the name of God. We can only use the Hebrew name for God. You know, it's a strange thing. The Jews saw that name so sacred they never did vocalize it. Isn't that amazing? For hundreds of years that word was not vocalized to the point that no one is absolutely sure how it had been vocalized before they took that stand. So today people think they know what the word is, but remember Hebrew did not have vowel sounds at that time. So we're only going to guess what the vowels are. And remember, the New Testament writers used a very common word for God. What was it in Greek? Theos. Theos. When they wrote the New Testament. And Sister White, when she wrote the Spirit of Prophecy, she used the English word. Common sense should tell us that that's a false doctrine. But there are so many Adventists today on that tangent. All of them are designed to get us away from the things of God. And then there are seven chapters. That's how important we see this being. On the eternal existence of Christ and of the three persons of the Godhead. Those two tend to go together. Now it is true that most of the pioneers believed that Jesus was not eternal with the Father. And most of the pioneers believe there are only two members of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit was a, um, a spirit of the Father and or the Son. And it was amazing when Sister White started to write contrary to this. Andreessen, how many of you have read Andreessen's experience when Desire of Ages came out? He was shocked out of his wits. He just knew that someone had interpolated. So he made an appointment to go to the White Estate that was then at um, Elmshaven. And he asked to see the handwritten manuscript. It's good that Sister White didn't type her, her manuscripts. 
would have been a little more difficult. And he went to all the pages where it talked about the three persons of the Godhead, where it said that Jesus was un, uh, underived. And he read those statements, and it just was her handwriting straight on, no corrections, no changes at that point. There are some changes that she made, of course, when she was hand-copying, but those were just as they were. Andreessen, believing in the spirit of prophecy, immediately changed his view on that, that matter. Um, the feast days. Is there many keep the feast days here? Adventist? No, I'm talking about Adventists. My, there's quite a lot in the United States. They're scattered, but they're there. Something to do here. That, uh, that chapter is a very strong chapter. I tell you, Sister White speaks so strongly against it. I could read the, the statement after statement in this book from the servant of the Lord. And you think, they use, the, the main arguments they seem to use, one of the main arguments that is used is, well, Paul's so anxious to get to the Feast of Pentecost. They don't take into account that twice the Holy Spirit told him not to go. Twice. You read that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea, this is verses 10 to 12, a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle bound him hand and feet, and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. Very serious. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, we both, and they of that place, besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. But he still went. Um, previous to that, um, where is it? Acts twenty sixteen. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, so he hasted to Pentecost. And in Acts 21, uh, four, 21 verse 4, And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now, does that mean that he should have gone up for the feast days? God told him twice through the Holy Spirit. Um, Sister White is very kind when she writes about this terrible blunder by Paul. When we think of Paul's great desire to be in harmony with his brethren, his tenderness towards the weak in the faith, his reverence for the apostles who had come with Christ, had been with Christ, and for James, the brother of the Lord, and his purpose to become all things to all men so far as he could without sacrificing principle, when we think of all this, it is less surprising that he was constrained to deviate from the firm decided course that he had hitherto followed. 
He'd always followed the Holy Spirit to this point. So she says, we can understand it. It's not condoning it, but we can understand why Paul did that. And as she goes on, but instead of accomplishing the desired object, his efforts for conciliation only precipitated the crisis, hastened his predicted sufferings, and resulted in separating him from his brethren, depriving the church of one of its strongest pillars and bringing sorrow to Christian hearts in every land. This wasn't God's plan. But you know, let me read one statement. Bible Commentary, Volume 5, 1139-1140. It was Christ's desire to leave to his disciples an ordinance that would do for them the very thing they needed, that would serve to disentangle them from the rites and ceremonies which they had hitherto engaged in as essential, and which they, uh, the reception of the gospel made no longer of any force. To continue these rites would be an insult to Jehovah. Do you think it's unimportant? Well, we could keep them or not keep them. Sister White says to keep those rites would be an insult to Jehovah. Why would we... You know, we were a people that took hold of Colossians 2, 14 to 16, and we declared that's not the moral law, that's the ceremonial law that was nailed to the cross. Can we be sure it was a ceremonial law? Because it was a law that was against us. And it was the ceremonial law in Deuteronomy that is said was against us. I tell you, why can we fall for those those problems you know you don't have to guess on these things Deuteronomy 34 isn't it I'm sorry Jeremiah uh, Deuteronomy 31 you'll notice verse 24 And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark. Now what law was put in the side of the ark? The ceremonial law. Where was the Ten Commandments put? In the center or underneath the the mercy seat of the ark. And it goes on to the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. And Paul says that the law he was talking about was the law that was against us. That was the ceremonial law that was done away with. You compare that with Colossians two fourteen to sixteen. You know, why do we fall? If, if our people were truly studying this word, they wouldn't make these mistakes. Do we have more than this one left? Or is that the answer? That's the last one. Okay. Um, then we talk about, is the Seventh-day Adventist Church Babylon? I just had a letter from a man and saying how wrong I was because Sister White never says that applies to the future. 
So I've given him two statements where Sister Y applies it to the future that we can never call the church Babylon. Does God destroy? That comes from both denominational and self-supporting work. Alternative medicine. Those of you that are strong into the health message, be careful of the Eastern mysticism that sometimes is portrayed as alternative medicine, portrayed as, um, as um, what shall we say, the health message. I mean, we've got Adventists that are into the pendulum. I had to count a, a, a pastor's wife that was doing all this pendulum stuff. All this Eastern mysticism. And the yin and the yang. How far back does the yin and the yang go? Just because it's not allopathic medicine doesn't make it good. God has given us natural remedies. The Wednesday crucifixion. You know, we picked them all up from other churches. The worldwide church of God was into that, you know. All you've got to do is to read the account of the, road, uh, the disciples on the way to Emmaus. You read that carefully and you'll see it couldn't be anything else but Friday and now Sunday. If you had no other indications, read the story of Jesus meeting the two men on the way to Emmaus. But there's much more evidence than that. The creation, no longer seven literal consecutive days. Do you think that could come into self-supporting work? You wouldn't expect it, would you? The confoobles on the millennium now. So we've put that in here. Keeping the correct Sabbath. It is true that in the early days they didn't keep the correct Sabbath. Remember it was kept from 6 to 6. 6 to 6. And the angel had to tell the servant of the Lord it wasn't 6 to 6. It was from sundown to sundown. I tell you. But now... There is a group of Adventists saying we must keep the Sabbath according to Jerusalem time. You know, some of these things have no common sense, but they get disciples. What happened to Jesus when he was east of Jerusalem as opposed to when he was west of Jerusalem? Did he keep a different day? The foolishness that comes in. But every one of these winds of doctrine leads someone away from the Lord and from salvation. That's all that Satan is doing it for. All that can be shaken will be shaken. Is it proper for women to speak in church? Now we're talking about not talking about women's ordination here. Is it proper or appropriate for women to speak in church? Well, when we studied that, we found it was quite appropriate from the counsels that the servant of the Lord has given, not just her example. You might be surprised. 
Most people think we're going to say no. But we didn't go on what we thought. We went on what the Word of God or inspiration says. But you want to read that. Now don't confuse that with ordination of women as pastors or elders. That's an entirely different issue. And then we look at time setting and the Elijah message, etc. That's a very... I wish we had some more of these. But listen, you need both of these if you haven't read this. This one's been out a little while. But that's the time. And um, we might have to get a few more of them over here um, uh, uh, of this Winds of Doctrine. <coughs> Um, if, if, if you um, can come, what might be best would be to let um, uh, Richard or Laura know th th and order them so they know how many to order if, because there's only this one here. I want to just read a few statements from the Lord. Here is a statement from Acts of the Apostles, page 68 and 69. The banner of truth and religious liberty held aloft by the founders of the Gospel Church and by God's witnesses during the centuries that have passed since then has in this last conflict been committed to our hands. We are committed to the hands, not only the banner of truth, but of religious liberty. The responsibility of this great gift rests upon those whom God has blessed with the knowledge of his word. We are to receive the word as supreme authority. We are to recognize human government as an ordinance of divine appointment and teach obedience to it as a sacred duty within its legitimate sphere. But when its claims conflict with the claims of God, we must obey God rather than man. God's word must be recognized as above all human legislation. And then this well-known statement of thus saith the Lord is not to be set aside for a thus saith the church or state. The crown of Christ is to be lifted above the diadems of earthly potentates. That means ecclesiastic potentates as well as secular potentates. Now, Elsewhere, she says that God will have a people upon the earth that maintain the Bible and the Bible only. You know, I am afraid our church is losing that, that focus. Or at least leaders in our church are losing it. Everything seems to be the maintaining of the church. As I look down history, when apostasy comes in, Unity is thought to be in being loyal to, quotes the church or the synagogue or to the temple. The temple, the temple. And we're crying the church, the church today. Listen, you don't have to worry about the church if you've got consecrated people. That's the issue. Have consecrated men and women and the church will look after itself. So therefore we concentrate on the total surrender of the will to Jesus Christ and that alone will bring unity in the church those things are happening I suppose we're all familiar with the document we signed with the Roman Catholics in Poland how many is that not familiar over here oh that was a prized little item in the review 
that the Roman Catholic Church in Poland and the Seventh-day Adventist Church, after 10 years of dialogue, you know, they slowly do their work, have signed a common agreement. They recognized Seventh-day Adventist as a legitimate faith. Now, you know there's only one way they would do that if we compromise. You think if we're identifying the Antichrist, if we're preaching the second and third angel's message, that they're going to be willing to sign such a document? And that was seen as a great step forward. I tell you, it was a huge step backwards, a mega step backwards. This pulpit's not somehow big enough for me. <laughs> I think next time I'll get a little table here. That might be the easiest. Thank you. And um, it's serious. And now we've just signed an agreement with the World Lutheran Federation. Wonderful, according to the review. Now, for four years we've been dialoguing. I had gone up in the office of Elder Bert Beach and urged him to stop those dialogues. Oh, they're so good. There's such a, a, a better understanding between us. I said, Bert, don't you think the Lutherans are the intermediates between us and the Catholics? What do you mean? Well, I said, they're, stu they're, they're um, studying and dialoguing with the Roman Catholic Church on justification by faith. What have you been studying with them on? Well, justification by faith. Now, they have signed a document of agreement with the Roman Catholic Church now on justification by faith. Now, we have signed a document with the World Lutheran Federation on exactly the same topic. Does that mean we're where the Roman Catholics are? Looks that way, doesn't it? Can you imagine what's going on? Well, this document shocked me. World Council of Churches. Off the web. Toward a common date for Easter. Now, we wouldn't have any interest in that, would we? As you know, that has been an issue that seriously divided Christendom for century after century. That was one of the criticisms against the Celtics in the 6th century, that they kept a different Easter from what the Roman Catholics kept. And the Orthodox churches keep a different Easter date from the Roman Catholics. In fact, they give four different sets of dates here in this website article and what they would be for the next 20 years, how different they would be in these four different communions. And they see one of the great goals of the ecumenical movement is everyone to keep the same. Listen to it. I'm just going to read a little bit of this. Beside the work already done on baptism, Eucharist and ministry, the churches need to address the renewal of preaching, the recovery of the meaning of Sunday. Now, this is all in this, this issue... Now we're going to see what role Seventh-day Adventists are playing. The recovery of the meaning of Sunday and the search for a common celebration of Pasha. That's Passover or Easter. As ecumenical theological concerns. Now how far should we be away from this? Well, there has been an 11-person committee 
chosen by the World Council of Churches, just 11 on the committee. And they list the members of that committee. Participants, there are the 11, and here are some of the hosts, the consultants, and the WCC staff. But this is the committee here, just 11 people. You probably can't see from even the front rows who's at the top of the list. Dr. Bert Beach, USA, for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Now, here is a document to try to recover the meaning of Sunday, to get a new, uh, a, a common date for Easter. What is, ha have we lost our minds, dear brethren and sisters? Have our church leaders got no idea of what we stand for? Here is a man being paid by the Holy Tithe to help this committee. And of course you've got the Metropolitan, to whatever he's called, the Patriarch of Switzerland. You've got Canon Halliburton of the United Kingdom for the Anglican Communion, of course. You've got this man representing the Evangelic Churches in the Middle East, the Armenian Orthodox Church, um, for the Middle East Council of Churches, for the Old Catholic Churches of the Union of Utrecht, for the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. I don't have to tell you he's a Roman Catholic. For the Patriarch of Moscow, for the Lutheran World Federation, for the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Antioch. Mainly Eastern churches because that's where the differences are on this date of Easter. But all for the Lord's sake we want to have the same Easter time for ecumenical. What's happened to us? We've lost our mind. If Sunday isn't coming into prominence, this was in the Press Enterprise, a California newspaper, May 13. That's a week ago, more or less. Saturday, yesterday would have been a week ago. Spending 15 to 30 minutes in the presence of God is critical, a church leader advises. At least put that amount in on Sunday, they're saying, so that you get a spiritual renewal. But I want you to notice how blind they are. The Sabbath goes back all the way to the book of Exodus. It is, in fact, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. They got the right commandment, at least, coming right after the commandment of not to take the Lord's name in vain and just ahead of the one about honouring thy father and thy mum mother. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is a United Methodist minister um, calling for Sunday to be enjoyed and um, fellowship. This man is, um, where was he from? He was from another church, Featherston. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but it's another Protestant church. Oh, Church of Christ, yes. And he says, he tells them the Sabbath is one of God's eternal principles. In the story of Genesis, God made the world and took the seventh day to rest. Now, you think that would help him, wouldn't you? Here's this Church of Christ minister declaring he took the seventh day to rest, and now he's keeping the first day. Well, he goes, makes a few funny comments, which is sacrilegious. But it says, it is a Christian practice to give Sunday the first day of the week back to God. After saying that God took the seventh day, it's a Christian practice, not from the word of God. The Sabbath movement says, 
This is no waste of time. That spending 15, 30 minutes in presence of God is critical. And, uh, and they even bring in Rabbi Ralph Mecklenburger. And he says, if you want to honor the Sabbath, um, in your own terms, you must define what work means to you. We must define. I think the Bible defines it pretty well. Traditionally, one is not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What is work? When most people were farmers, that was what was diff what that what was different. You didn't farm on the Sabbath. But today, you make up your own decision: what's work and what's not work on the Sabbath. It's coming in. By the way, the other article here is of Mother Earth and Heavenly Father. It's trying to link the environmentalists or the New Ages with Christianity. They're trying to bring all, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Yes, the New Ages are going to worship him. The pagan religionists are going to worship him. Most Seventh-day Adventists are going to worship him. The question is, are we going to, to worship him? Not if our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now this is the 160th Congress second session. A bill to authorize a gold medal to be awarded on behalf of the Congress to Pope John Paul II in recognition of his many and enduring contributions to peace and religious understanding and for other purposes. And here are the findings of the committee that are authorizing that gold medal, congressional medal, to be struck on behalf of the Pope. The Congress finds that Pope John Paul II is the spiritual leader of more than one billion Catholic Christians around the world and millions of Catholic Christians in America and has led the Catholic Church into the third millennium. Number two, it recognizes... But in the United States and abroad, he is a preeminent moral authority. A preeminent moral authority. Three, he has dedicated his pontificate to the freedom and dignity of every individual human being and tirelessly traveled to the far reaches of the globe as an exemplar of faith. Well, faithful people keep the commandments. Three, he has dedicated his pontificate. I'm sorry, I've read that one. Number four, he has brought hope to millions of people all over the world oppressed by poverty, hunger, illness and despair. Five, transcending temporal politics. My, he's one of the greatest politicians the world's ever known. But transcending temporal politics has used his moral authority to hasten the fall of godless totalitarian regimes symbolized by the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Six, he has promoted the inner peace of man as well as a peace among mankind throughout his faith-inspired defense of justice. And seven, has thrown open the doors of the Catholic Church, reconciling differences with Christendom as well as reaching out to the world's other great religions. How can you call him the Antichrist? when he's all those wonderful things. For that, 
the American Congress is striking a gold medal. As I said, they've put aside $30,000 for one medal. That's the issue. In that time, brethren and sisters, we've got to hold the banner of truth high. We've got to preach the three angels' messages. All efforts are going to be made to close it. Soon everyone that tries to proselytize is going to be outside the banner of the law of this nation or any nation of the planet. I don't have to tell you that um, Tony Blair will be one of the first to take hold of whatever the United States does in this area. I mean, he will rush to it, in my estimation. Look at his first efforts to try to um, uh, change the Act of Settlement, the 1701 Act of Settlement. He's been blocked by the fact that it's just so many other laws that are intertwined with it that it would just about be a, an impossibility to separate them all apart. But uh, there's no question that's the desire and this um, nobleman up here in Scotland that's been trying to press for Parliament to take away all the provisions of the Act of Settlement of 1701. I tell you, we are coming to the time when all the world wanders after the beast. Well, it's a wonderment to us too, for that matter. The Act of Settlement. Who knows what the... Who studied British history? All right, what was the Act of Settlement? You mean the Brits have forgotten the Act of Settlement? I thought... You know, when I'm in America, I try to explain it. I don't expect them to know about it. Uh, no Catholic can rule. No queen. The queen or the monarch, the reigning monarch, is the head of the Church of England. Pretty hard for a Roman Catholic to be the head of the Church of England. Oh, it used to be hard. It may be easy today. Because there's no question that soon... I believe the reunification of the Church of Rome, the reunification of the Church of England will take place. It's so close now. Um, Runcie started the moves and they've keep going on. When he was... It's a very serious thing. There's a real move in the British Parliament to try to overflow the Act of Settlement. Thank you. Well, I hope they gave him the three angels' messages when he went there. Oh, yes. Well, brethren and sisters, all I'm saying is here, let's stand firm. Let's make sure we meet each other in heaven. We don't know how much longer these kind of meetings are going to carry on. We can plan for the future, but don't be surprised if in the not-too-distant future we won't be able to hold these meetings. And... Um, Someone like myself will come to the immigration in Heathrow Airport and they're going to turn me back. Or I'll be turned back before I even get here. Just keep that in mind. That can happen. But one thing is certain, we're all got to be there. Heaven's too good to miss. 
Jesus has paid too great a price for our salvation. Let us not fail him. Let's kneel in prayer to that commitment. Father in heaven, as we kneel in thy presence, we recognize that we would all fail thee if we were dependent on our own human strength. And so we pray today for courage, not only to know what is taking place, but to have that dedication to thee that we would rather die than sin or commit one wrong word or action that we will be faithful unto death, that we will endure unto the end. For thou hast promised the crown of life to all thy faithful people. O Lord, be with us. You have promised that we will not be tested above our endurance, but will make a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. O Lord, help no one to fail in this day of test and trial. We pray in the saving name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.